Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery. I'm your host, Tyler Rouse. First off, apologies for being away for so long, but I'm back, and my goal is to continue to create podcasts monthly for the foreseeable future. So having said that, we're going to cover the Code of Hammurabi, a set of laws that date back thousands of years, and in particular, how this represents the first evidence of the intersection between surgery and the legal system, including some surprising punishments for malpractice. So let's press on and charge forward in this episode of Legends of Surgery. In 1901, Jacques de Morgan, a French mining engineer, led the French archaeological mission to what was then Persia to excavate the Elamite capital of Susa. Elam was an ancient civilization that lasted for thousands of years in what is now southwestern Iran. At the Acropolis of Susa, the steel of Hammurabi was discovered, broken into three pieces. Okay, a few things here to talk about. First, the word Acropolis means the elevated part of a Greek city. From the Greek words akron, meaning the summit, or tip, or extremity, and polis, meaning city. Think metropolis, which means mother city. Shout out to Superman. Anyways, akron also gives us a few medical words. Maybe the first that came to mind was acromegaly. The term was coined by French neurologist Dr. Pierre-Marie, the disease was also briefly known as Marie's Malady, in 1886. He chose the name because, in his words, quote, a condition characterized by hypertrophy of the hands, feet, and the face exists, which we propose to be called acromegaly, which means hypertrophy of the extremities, end quote. So back to the steel of Hammurabi. So what exactly does the word steel mean? It's a Greek word meaning a standing block or slab, which is exactly what it was. Now more specifically, a four-ton slab of basalt rock, which is black, carved into a sort of cylindrical shape that is thought to date back to the rule of Hammurabi, the sixth king of the first dynasty of the old Babylonian Empire, from 1792 to 1750 BCE, almost 4,000 years ago. The reason it was found in Susa, not Babylon, is that it was likely brought there as spoils of war in the mid-12th century BCE. On the top two and a half feet of the steel was a carved relief depicting Hammurabi receiving a rod and ring, symbols of authority, from a seated Shamash, the Babylonian sun god and god of justice. Below this was a lengthy cuneiform script. Now here's a fun fact. It's called cuneiform, meaning wedge-shaped from the Latin cuneus, oh, meaning a wedge. The German physician and traveler Engelbert Kampfer, who lived from 1681 to 1716 CE, is credited with the first use of the term to describe Middle Eastern characters, as they were made with wedge-shaped writing tools. And here's another medical connection. The foot contains three wedge-shaped bones known as the medial, intermediate, and lateral cuneiform bones. The steel was packed up and shipped to the Louvre in Paris, where it still resides today, by the way, and within a year it had been translated from the old Babylonian dialect. The writing was divided up into three parts, a prologue, a series of laws, 282 to be exact, and an epilogue. Now, part of this writing claims that Hammurabi had been granted his rule by the gods, quote, to prevent the strong from oppressing the weak and to see that justice is done to widows and orphans, end quote. These translations were widely publicized and were initially considered to be one of the earliest examples of a written legal code predating the Hebrew Old Testament. Now, while later discoveries of written Mesopotamian laws predate the Code of Hammurabi by hundreds of years, it was by far the most complete example of a legal code in the ancient world. 
Now let's dig into some of these laws, shall we? Firstly, the general vibe of the laws, as you'll hear, are considered one of the earliest examples of lex talionis. And what is that, you may ask? Well, that is Latin, lex meaning law, and talio, as in retaliation. This is sometimes known as an eye for an eye, which many sources claim was first used in the Code of Hammurabi. But it was also one of the earliest examples of an accused person being considered innocent until proven guilty. The edicts range from family law to professional contracts and administrative law, often outlining different standards of justice for the three classes of Babylonian society, the property class, free men, and slaves. So at this point, or maybe earlier, you were thinking, isn't this a history of surgery podcast? Why, yes, I was just getting to that. You see, nine of these laws refer specifically to surgeons and surgery, and as you'll see, involve retributive justice and has differing standards based on the patient's class. So before we get to those specific laws, let's talk a little bit about Babylonian society and the state of medicine and surgery at the time. Now, there were three social classes, as mentioned earlier. First are the alem, the upper class, including aristocrats, businessmen, feudal lords, free men, large landowners, military leaders, palace officials, professionals, and temple priests. Next are the mushkinem, the middle class, consisting of poor free men, commoners who own small properties, tenant farmers, craftsmen, merchants, hired laborers, and even former slaves. And lastly, the wardom, which are just male and female slaves. Now let's talk medical practice in Babylon. Illness was believed to be caused by the intervention of extraneous metaphysical forces such as demons, evil spirits, ghosts of the dead, or the wrath of the gods. People became ill for committing a sin or being victimized by outside agents such as cold, dust, or a bad smell. Ashaku was the demon of consumption, a.k.a. tuberculosis. Ira was the spirit of pestilence. Alu caused blindness. Nergal gave a fever. Tayu caused headaches, and Namtar was the evil spirit responsible for the plague. A medicine was practiced by the priestly class, not surprising given these beliefs, and was largely magico-religious. There were three types of healers, diviners, exorcists, and physicians. Now, there were also barbers who performed minor plastic surgery, as they were the ones that marked slaves and removed slave brandings, as well as doing some dental operations. The diviners called Baru, were like internal medicine specialists, interpreting omens and predicting the course of diseases, including performing hepatoscopy. Now, a sick person would breathe into the nostrils of a sheep, the animal would be sacrificed, and its liver, an organ considered the seat of the soul and the center of vitality, was compared to a concisely coded clay model to make a diagnosis. The next group, the exorcists, called Ashipu, inquired about the nature of the offense to the gods and would drive out the evil spirits with incantations, prayers, recitations, sacrifices, and ceremonial rituals. Finally, we have the physicians, called Azu, who were educated in priestly administered schools associated with temples, learning from recorded clay tablets and practical experience, which sounds a little bit like medical school, right? Azu worshipped Gula, the goddess of medicine and healing, and her husband, Nanurta, a god of agriculture, hunting, and war, as well as healing. Nanazu was the Lord Doctor, the patron of physicians, and his son, Ningishzida, a healing god, carried a round staff with a double-sexed, two-headed serpent named Sashan. Did the idea of a snake and staff make you think of the modern symbol of medicine? Well, whether or not it did, it's time for another patented Legends of Surgery tangent. 
If you imagined a staff entwined with two serpents topped off with a set of wings, you are thinking of the caduceus, which comes from a Greek root meaning herald's wand and is the symbol of Hermes, a.k.a. Mercury, the messenger of the gods. The origin story is that Hermes once attempted to stop a fight between two snakes by throwing his rod at them, which they wrapped themselves around. Now before the caduceus, the symbol of medicine was the staff of Asclepius, the god of medicine and son of Apollo. A fun story, Asclepius was killed by his grandfather Zeus by a thunderbolt because not enough people were entering the underworld due to his healing skills. The symbol, which dates back to 800 BCE and is used by the American Medical Association, among many others, consists of a single staff with one snake wrapped around it. By the way, the snake was used as a symbol of health and healing because it could shed and regenerate its skin. Now, so how did the caduceus become the symbol of medicine? Amazingly, we can trace this back to a specific event. In 1902, at the suggestion of Assistant Surgeon Captain Frank Reynolds, the U.S. Army Medical Corps adopted a new uniform code that established the caduceus as the collar insignia for all personnel. So why did he choose this? There is a long and fascinating history behind it, but I'll give you the short version. While the caduceus can be traced back to the 16th century CE in association with medicine, it was likely the adoption of the symbol by the English medical printer Churchill beginning in 1844 that may have caused Captain Reynolds' confusion. Let me read you a passage from the book by Walter J. Friedlander called The Golden Wand of Medicine, a history of the caduceus symbol in medicine. Quote, that John Churchill adopted the caduceus as his printer's device independent of any idea that it symbolized medicine does not mean that, once having adopted it, it did not play some role in the caduceus coming to be accepted as a symbol of medicine, at least in the United States. During the remaining part of the 19th century, several United States publishers appear to have copied or modified Churchill's caduceus and placed this mark on their medical books. Other contemporary British publishers did not use the caduceus, and the caduceus has never been as widely connected to medicine in Great Britain or in Europe as it has been in the United States. Amazingly, the initial suggestion in March was dismissed outright by Surgeon General G.W. Sternberg, but Reynolds persisted, and a second letter to the new Surgeon General W.H. Forwood got the idea approved. On July 17th of 1902, the caduceus of gold was adopted as the branch insignia. The U.S. Army Medical Corps and the U.S. Navy Medical Corps still use the caduceus with two snakes, but the U.S. Air Force Medical Service uses the staff of Asclepius. Now you know. Okay, back to the physicians of Babylon. The Azu would listen to the patient's accounts and make one of the many diagnoses from the clay tablets, which included ailments that may sound similar to those that we deal with today. For example, abscesses, apoplexy, which is essentially a hemorrhagic stroke, appetite control, colic, constipation, cough, fevers, gallbladder troubles, heart disease, phthisis, or tuberculosis, rectal prolapse, rheumatism, meaning inflamed joints, skin rashes, tumors, and venereal disease, to name a few. Now, once a diagnosis had been made, the Azu would prescribe medications, perform surgery, provide wound care, set fractures, treat snake bites, etc. All right, without further ado, here they all are with one caveat. There are a few versions of the translations of these, but you'll get the idea. Law 215. If a physician performs eye surgery and saves the eye, he shall receive 10 shekels in money. 216. If the patient be a freedman, he receives 5 shekels. 217. 
If he be the slave of someone, his owner shall give the physician two shekels. 218. If a physician performs an operation and kills someone or cuts out his eye, the doctor's hands shall be cut off. 219. If a physician performs an operation on the slave of a freedman and kills him, the doctor shall replace the slave with another slave. 220. If he had opened a tumor with the operating knife and put out his eye, he shall pay half his value. 221. If a physician healed a broken bone or diseased soft part of a man, the patient shall pay the physician five shekels in money. 222. If he were a freedman, he shall pay three shekels. 223. If he were a slave, his owner would pay the physician two shekels. Now, for perspective, it would take a craftsman about a year to earn 12 to 14 shekels. So some of these may represent pretty significant sums. Now, what can we learn from these laws? Now, these predate the Edwin Smith Papyrus, the oldest surgical text known, which shows that surgery and law existed in a sophisticated form when writing was just beginning. This also demonstrates that Babylonian society had reached an impressive level of complexity with the strict regulation of medical practices and the creation of what is essentially a fee-for-service schedule. It is also one of the earliest examples of tort, defined as the breach of a duty whereby someone acquires a right of action for damages. And this comes from the Latin torcur, or to twist, think torque, like a twisting force. It also shows a darker side of this ancient culture with its draconian punishments. From Draco, a 7th century BCE Athenian legislator infamous for unusually harsh laws. And inequalities for different social classes. Still, some fascinating ancient history highlighting how early the practice of medicine and surgery in particular came to be governed under the law. And let's end this segment with a fun fact. The U.S. Supreme Court building features Hammurabi on the marble carvings of historic lawgivers that lines the south wall of the courtroom. Now before we go, a quick suture tale. Now some of you science nerds out there will know the Nobel Prizes were recently announced. While we've covered surgeons that have won in the past, see episode 28, a recent win was related to surgery, so we should at least touch on it. This year, 2023, the Nobel Prize in Chemistry went to Mungi Bowendi, Louis Brew, and Alexei Ekimov for the discovery and development of quantum dots. So what are those? Basically, these are nanoparticles that are so tiny, 2 to 10 nanometers, and for perspective, a human hair is 80,000 to 100,000 nanometers in diameter, that their size determines their properties. When exposed to a short-wave light source, they absorb some of that energy and re-emit light of a longer wavelength, a process known as fluorescence. Change the size of the quantum dot, change the color of light, they fluoresce. Now, these quantum dots are already used in LED lights, LCD TV screens, solar panels, and other applications. But what does this have to do with surgery? Well, there are early experiments using quantum dots in cancer operations. Now, currently, organic dyes or radioisotopes are injected into the area of a primary tumor, for example, breast cancers, and within a few minutes, they migrate through the lymphatic system to show what lymph nodes might contain metastases, the so-called sentinel lymph node. The problem is that these dyes and radioisotopes migrate quickly, and it can be difficult to pinpoint the exact location of interest. Quantum dots have been shown to migrate relatively slowly through tissue and maintain their ability to fluoresce for many hours. As well, the dots could be engineered to emit light in the infrared, allowing light to penetrate through skin and fatty tissue, so the area of interest could be identified before the surgery even begins. Another use could be to direct chemotherapeutic agents, 
as nanoparticles are absorbed and accumulate faster in tumors than in normal tissue, a phenomenon called enhanced permeability and retention. And who knows what other possibilities exist? The history of surgery continues to be written. Now that wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. As I said at the top, my new goal is to release an episode a month, so look for one soon. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you download episodes and leave a comment there. Follow me on what is now X, I guess, rather than Twitter, at Surgery Legends. Like us at Facebook at Legends of Surgery or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you, but your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes. And as always, thanks for listening. <laughs>